So this is our second to last message um, in this current series through the book of James, subtitled Living Faith. We see another aspect of living faith um, this evening. I don't know if you noticed as we read through, as Brandon read through that text, that there are at least five references that James made in that section to the last days, to the last judgment, and to the coming or the return of Jesus Christ. At least five in that short passage. In verse 3, he said, um, condemning the unrighteous with their wealth, that you have hoarded wealth in the last days. He said two verses later, verse 5, you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. An Old Testament prophetic reference to the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's judgment. And then in verse 7, he says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming, until the the coming, the return of Jesus Christ. Be patient, a verse later, verse 8, and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. And in verse 9, again, he, he speaks of this by saying, The judge is standing at the door. Those are the five, those are the five or so references that um, stood out to me as I read this passage. I remember as a child, I think I was about um, eight or nine years old, I was uh, driving with my dad, I think my brother was in the car as well, to visit a man who was dying in hospital uh, in Sydney at that time. And on the way there, I didn't know this, this guy, um, and I have no re- memory of seeing him at the hospital. He was not a particularly close friend of my, my father's, but my dad was telling me in the, in the car um, what was perhaps most interesting about this man uh, was that he knew when Jesus Christ was returning. He knew when the world was ending. I found this as an eight or nine-year-old fascinating, of course. I think at the time, you know, I'd grown up in Sunday school, um, and so I had an idea of the concept that Jesus Christ was coming back. It had been something that I'd heard of, but to think that someone knew when Jesus was coming back uh, this was um, fascinating. But very quickly, my dad cleared, uh, cleared much up for me uh, when he told me before we arrived at the hospital, this was the third time this man had predicted the end of the world and the return of Christ. And this third time, um, well, it passed without re- Jesus returning. That's kind of why we're standing here, isn't it? You know? If it had happened, it would have happened, no? But that's the first I remember of thinking about the end of the world or consciously thinking about it, that Jesus would return on a real, on an actual day, at an actual hour, at an actual place. Up to then, as I said, it had only just been some concept that I'd heard about maybe at Sunday school at church. Yeah, Jesus will come back at some point. And during my youth later, at some point I came into contact with what I've called the, the end times industry. They make money out of churning out books, slightly reworked, when every time a prophecy fails, uh, claiming to know when the world will end and when Christ will return. All very fascinating uh, when you get into it, but it can be a a wormhole, a rabbit hole, uh, from which there's hardly escape. So it was only many years later, and I'm sure many of you will, will of course, know books that have been churned out by the end times industry. It was only many years later that I finally got clear of that and I came to rest in what Jesus says. And this is how he says it in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 13, verses 32 and 33, right towards the end of his ministry, during Holy Week, just before his crucifixion, talking about his return and talking about the end of the age. He says to his disciples, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, 
but only the Father. So be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. So plainly, as Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour at which Christ will return, not even Jesus Christ himself when he was on earth, nor the angels of God in heaven, only, Jesus says, the Father. So if anyone says they do know when Jesus is coming back, they're either misguided or lying. I think that's fair to say. But so I made the right step. I think I made a healthy step away from what I would today look at as false prophecy or at best useless speculation. But I found myself in another dangerous place. At least for me it was like this. Because no one knows the hour, I thought, it became for me almost a timeless thing. I took therefore Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount and I used them to justify not thinking about Christ's return at all. There in chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is talking about how we should not worry, something we spoke about last Sunday here, Church at Five as well, he says these words, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Well, if each day has enough trouble of its own and I'm not supposed to worry about tomorrow, then I can't worry about when Jesus Christ might come back, because that's obviously not today, it'll be tomorrow. And so what I'd neglected to consider which is what James is showing us so clearly in these texts tonight. He's warning us so clearly in this text, and he's following Jesus' example. Is he saying, the Lord's coming, the return of Jesus Christ is near, and therefore we must be prepared. We don't need to worry about it, but we need to be prepared for it. As we read just a moment ago, and I'll give you verse 8 again of James 5. He says, You too, brothers and sisters, speaking to the Christians, speaking to the church, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. But what do I, what do I mean or what does the New Testament mean by saying that the Lord's coming is near? Basically this. To say that the Lord's coming is near as James does, and he's not alone in the New Testament... We mean that there's now nothing else. There are no events that must happen first before Jesus Christ can return. In the previous age, the age that ended with John the Baptist, if you've been following along on a Sunday morning with our study through Luke's gospel, John was the the greatest who lived before the coming of the kingdom of God in that previous age. In the previous age, Emmanuel, God with us, was prophesied. That was a future thing. Jesus Christ then came as the incarnate Word of God. He lived a sinless life in perfect relationship to His Father, God the Father. He fulfilled the law of God. He died on the cross to defeat the powers of sin and death. He was resurrected to new life. He ascended into heaven. And from there, He sent His Holy Spirit to build His church. So that the next major event in God's plan of salvation in real history... That's our faith. Our faith is in real history. The next major event in God's plan of salvation in history is the return of Jesus Christ. There's no list of unfulfilled items that has to happen first. Indeed, if we claim that, if we say this and this and this has to happen first before Jesus comes again, we're denying the clear teaching of the New Testament here, at least at this point where James says, the coming of the Lord is, is near. In fact, there'd be no reason for James to write the coming of the Lord is near if it was clear to both him and his hearers that there was 
a bunch of other things that had to happen before Jesus returns. So the New Testament describes the time after the first coming of Jesus Christ as the last days, the last hour. That's the term that John uses in his letter. In fact, the end, as Peter uses in his literature. And everything that Jesus predicted, we saw a moment ago a quote from Jesus in his um, speaking to his disciples about these things towards the end of his ministry. Everything that he predicted would happen in this period of the end or the last days is already happening in different places all around the world. Indeed, just on Thursday, meeting with other pastors uh, from southern Germany um, and hearing reports of Christians being persecuted in Afrin, in that pocket in northern Syria, as, uh, as the forces of Turkey close in on that city. So everything that Jesus talked about, persecution, difficulty, suffering, is happening all right now all around the world. And indeed, it's been happening right from the beginning of Jesus' church. So the return of Jesus, that's what we mean by saying the Lord's coming is near, is the next great event in God's plan of salvation. It's the next major thing that's going to happen. And that's why I've called this message today, How to Wait for Christ's Return. Because that is what James is really talking about today. How to wait, how should we wait for Christ's return? If the Lord's coming is near, how then should we live? Because although his coming is near in the sense that in terms of God's perspective on history, it's the next major thing to happen, yet there's a delay. There's a delay that even Jesus himself was aware of. I quoted before from from Mark's gospel, uh, after saying, after Jesus himself said, therefore to his disciples, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. He then tells three parables about his return, about this delay. And they're given to us in full in Matthew's gospel. The first of which he talks about the parable of the ten virgins. And we don't have time to go into these today. Many of you will know these parables as if you've read through the gospel of Matthew. But basically there are ten virgins and they're waiting for the bridegroom to come to the wedding festival. And the bridegroom is delayed takes far longer than they expect and therefore at least 10 of them are caught out. They have no oil in their lamps. It's gone dark while they've been waiting. In the second parable, Jesus talks about a master going away on a long journey and setting his servants over his property. And he says that the master only returns after a very long time. So Jesus himself knew there would be a delay. And that means that we as Christians, we're waiting now for Christ's return. And James is concerned here in this text to help us wait well. And that's a funny thing to say, isn't it? Because I think most of us hate waiting. (laughs) Waiting is just one of those things you really don't like to do in life. But this is a different kind of waiting. This is not the waiting perhaps that you do at the the tram stop or the, the train station or at the airport lounge. This is waiting for Jesus Christ to return. And so that's something that we should want to do well. And so that brings us to the text that we've heard this evening. And the text, um, our, our text tonight is made up of, if you will, the second and third of three-part segment towards the end of this main section of the letter. 
Twice James begins a section here, now listen. He's got an important point to communicate. And we looked at the first one of those last week, starting in verse 13 of chapter 4. This week we look at section 2, which also begins, now listen, chapter 5, verse 1. And then the last section where James gives us some thoughts that are contingent upon, that depend upon what he's just said in the first verses of this chapter. So let me read to you again now the verses 1 through 6. Now listen, you rich people, James says. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. So in light of the fact that we are living in the end times, the last days, that is the period in history immediately before which Jesus Christ will return, James pronounces judgment and warning on those who miss the signs of the times, who don't recognize the time in which they live as the last days. And these people here are what I'm going to call the unrighteous rich. James is not actually having a go at everybody who has money. He's having a go at people who misuse the wealth they've had and in doing so miss the signs of the times in which they live. This is now the third passage in James' letter in which he speaks of uh, the rich. So if you've got your, I'll open up my Bible here as well. If you've got your Bible there in chapter 1 and verse 10 and 11. That was James' first statement addressing uh, the rich. And he warned his readers of the, this is a cool word, isn't it? The the Evanescence. Maybe you guys know that band from the 90s? Was that in the 90s? Evanescence? Yeah. Evanescence, that means like the transient nature of things that are passing by. He warned his readers of the evanescence of wealth and of rich people themselves. In 10 and 11, he says, the rich ought to take pride in their humiliations since they will pass away like a wild flower. We're just about to get those seasons of the the Easter bells, Osterglocken. They come up and then they kind of wither away and they're gone. They're only transient. They're not there for long. That's his picture. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls. Its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Then a chapter later, in chapter 2 and verses 5 to 7, he warns the Christian church not to show partiality to the rich. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, 2, 5 through 7. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised? Those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor. Isn't it the rich who are exploiting you? Aren't they the ones dragging you into court? Aren't they the ones who are blaspheming the noble name, Jesus, to whom you belong? So it's the rich, according to James, who are the cause of so much of the suffering, so many of the trials that the Christians in the churches to which he's writing to are going through. 
They're dragging Christians off to court. They're exploiting them. And they're blaspheming the name of Jesus. But now here in, in, in chapter 5, um, James really lets loose, you might say. He takes the style of the prophets announcing doom on Israel and on pagan nations in the Old Testament. You might, um, you might want to read at home later the book of Amos. There are many similarities between what James writes here in the book of Amos, where Amos uh, speaks prophecies against the nations and against Judah and against Israel because of the way they live their lives, and particularly against Israel. Amos' prophecy is directed against them because they exploit the poor. So James unrelievedly attacks the rich in those verses that we just heard. We, I mean, you, heard all, you all heard the language he used. You're gonna, your flesh will burn like fire. There's no hint of encouragement here like we saw last week when James was, was talking to Christians in the church that they needed to be concerned about how they look towards the future, about how they practice their business. Here, James is speaking judgment upon the unrighteous rich. And we see that very clearly here. Let's just quickly look at it. In verse 1, he says, weep and wail. This is the response of people who are under the judgment of God. That the coming miseries is looking forward to divine judgment. You're going to weep and wail because you, you don't know what's going to hit you. You don't know what's coming. Even his language here about wealth rotting. I mean, if, you, if you've studied uh, chemistry here, you probably know that gold and silver don't actually rust. So it's, a, it's meant here in a prophetic sense that their wealth is rotting away because it's under judgment from the way it's been misused. Or in verse 3, as I quoted a moment ago, the corrosion of their wealth will testify against them and eat their flesh like fire. He talks about here in verse 5, you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Again, a reference to Old Testament prophecies of judgment. So like the prophets in the Old Testament here, and particularly like Amos, James prophesies destruction on the unrighteous rich. And you might say, well, why is this included in the book of James? I mean, if, if, if this letter is going to Christians and this is a text of judgment against non-Christians, people outside the church, I think it's, it's similar to ask, why, why are we given the prophecies in the Old Testament or why did God give prophecies to prophets about nations outside Israel, like Babylon or Assyria, that they were never going to read the prophecy? Paul says something interesting in 1 Corinthians 10.6. He says, all of the things in the Old Testament, all these things are given to us as an example, as a warning to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. I'm going to understand that this is what James is intending here. His words are directed against people outside the church, but they serve for us as an example, and as a warning to keep us from setting our hearts on the evil things that they did, namely in this case, wealth. And so that's the first way that James is showing us today of how to wait for Christ's return. He's giving his examples of how not to wait for Christ's return. How not to wait for Christ's return. So as Christians, we need to hear these strong words that James gives us here to encourage us in the fight against sin and for Christ in our hearts. I want to give you three warnings that we need to hear as Christians from these verses. Certainly, 
warnings that I need to hear and I think that you need to hear also because we are so liable to fall into sin. It's interesting in the book of Hebrews, um, the, the author says that we should do everything we can to free ourselves from the sin which so easily besets us, so easily entangles us. Sin is right there and it's just waiting for us to fall into. And James doesn't want that. Jesus doesn't want that. So he gives us these warnings. We're warned here in verse 4 about fraud. That is, in, the, in James's um, denunciation, in his uh, prophecy against the rich, he's saying they failed to pay the workers the wage that was their due. They deceived them. The rich people deceived the workers in order to achieve unjust gain. And so that must be the warning to us. We're warned here that fraud is not a Christian behavior. No surprises there. We are not to be deceptive. I mean, that's, yeah, that's pretty easy to accept. But if we start to get a bit granular and say we're not to be deceptive in order to achieve unjust gain, I think that's a little bit more challenging for many of us in the way we live, we live our lives. We should pay for content that we use, read, consume, and watch. We should pay for transport that we travel on. That's true. Hello. Now you're on the tape. Shouldn't have laughed at that one. That's the first thing. James is saying you can't be involved in deceptive behavior in order to achieve unjust gain. We're warned here about murder. And this, is a, this is another one that we can give much thought to. And, and luckily we have people in our churches who, who do this for us and help us here. He's not talking about literal murder, but he's talking about murder in the sense that the behavior of the rich, dragging people into court, exploiting them, not paying their wages, they're taking away the very livelihood of the workers and the poor so that these poor people, these workers, have nothing to actually live on. They're condemned to suffer and die because they literally don't have enough to live on. They don't have enough money to buy food. They don't have enough money to buy water. So... We have to be thinking about the way, the way our societies work, the way our, our, our systems of supply and demand work to make sure that we are not involved in the figurative murder of people around the world by supporting systems that take away their very livelihood and prevent them from having even enough to live on. And thirdly, we're warned here about greed and selfishness. Let me just read again from my Bible here. About greed and selfishness. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have hoarded wealth, verse 3b, in the last days. Instead of using that which they'd been blessed with, whether they were believers or not, it says the Lord blesses, he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. He the Lord makes the crops grow. He, he sends resources on the whole world. And these people, instead of using what they've been blessed with in order to bless and look after others, they hoarded it. They kept it all for themselves and they spent their lives in luxury and self-indulgence. All the while, others starved and were destroyed. It's a pretty sick picture. And here he links it up to the the last days. 
He says, you've hoarded wealth in the last days. In other, world, in other words, even though we're in the last age of history before Jesus Christ returns and sets up his new kingdom, even though as all humanity we've seen the grace of God manifest in Christ, in some sense, even though not every person might have heard the gospel of Christ, there has been a, an epoch-changing event with the resurrection of Jesus. And, that, and through the resurrection of Jesus, we see as humanity God's grace shown to us and we see the model in Jesus Christ of the new humanity. So even though this has happened, yet foolishly these people go on hoarding for themselves, ignoring the plight of others and ignoring the sign of judgment. I thought about the example of um, being really stubborn at the, at the beach and I'm, I'm determined to build this sandcastle even though the tide is coming in. It's foolish. They're missing the signs of the times. They're refusing to acknowledge as a, as a sandcastle builder that that tide is coming in. It's going to be over sooner or later for that castle. So the question that we might have as Christians is, what should we do then with our money? And James is saying quite clearly here, you shouldn't lay up earthly treasure here and now with Jesus coming being so near. That's the, that's the connection. Because Jesus coming is near, because that's the next event on God's plan, on God's timetable of salvation, there's no point laying up earthly treasure here and now. There's no point building sandcastles now when the tide is coming in. That's foolish. Rather, with the resources that we have, we should be investing what God's given us into his kingdom and into his mandate to make disciples of all nations, to preach the gospel, to reduce suffering, to help the poor. We should use all of our resources, not just money, all of our resources generously, always willing to share and seeking to maximize our good works for God's glory. That's the opposite of foolish. That's wise. That's understanding the signs of the times. That's really waiting well for the return of Christ, knowing that that's the next event in salvation history and determining to make the most of every moment and every resource that we're given until his, the glorious day of his return. And there's much that could be said about how we deal with finances and resources. And that's a topic for another day. But I think it's clear to you now, and perhaps even now the Holy Spirit is showing you where you might need to change your attitude or your behavior on these things. There's no point laying up earthly treasure here now, hoarding things. That's foolish, and that's worthy of judgment. Rather, we should be freely investing all that God's given us into his kingdom, into his mandate willing to share, maximizing our good works for God's glory. So that's the first way we see this evening of how to wait for Christ's return. Don't be like the unrighteous rich, but instead give generously and freely for God's kingdom, knowing because we know of the time in which we live. And James then continues, and I'll read these these next verses through to 11 again, so they're fresh in our minds. Be patient then. So then referring back to what we've just heard in these first six verses. On account of these things that we've just heard, therefore, be patient, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient, stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. 
brothers and sisters, as an example of patience and suffering. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. So as we said before, this then in verse 7 relates to all of what we've read in these verses. 1 through 6, this denouncement, denouncing of the rich. In other words, because of the, how this age is, because of the, the, this is the last days, because of how the unrighteous rich are, therefore be patient. The Christians James is writing to, I wonder how much um, we can relate to this, they're living hard, difficult lives. I mean, perhaps we read over that too quickly. They're being dragged off to court. They're being exploited. They're suffering for their faith. And so James writes in this section of his letter to tell them how to wait for Christ's return. Let's look at what he says now. So starting off in verses 7 and 8, the very first thing James says, James 5, 7, is be patient. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. That word can mean be patient, remain patient, wait patiently so i think the idea is clear be patient we should not grow weary or worried or waver in the face of difficulty or trial you're seeing recurring themes here in the book of james this is what he started out with in chapter one but we should be patient until when until the lord's coming we know that christ will return we know that he may well be delayed We don't know exactly when he will return. James asks us not to speculate on when Christ might return, not to lose heart, not to waver, not to be worried, but simply to be patient. And he gives us a picture to help us understand what he means by patience here. He gives us a picture in in verse 7. See how the farmer, this is such a, a calming picture in one sense, perhaps because I've never been a farmer, but... See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. This is a picture that Jesus also gives us in Mark's gospel, chapter 4, and he uses the same picture to tell us what his kingdom is like. In Mark 4 and verse 26, we read, Jesus also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day. Whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he doesn't know how. And all by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. The farmer, James says, waits patiently for the land to yield its crop. And Jesus compares his kingdom to the same principle which means that we learn from this what the kingdom of god is like what that means is what our christian faith what our christian lives are like or should be like namely that is they're nothing like the domineering culture of today which demands instant gratification miracle overnight change instant transformation 
To be patient means not to live Christianity this way, but rather to follow the example of the farmer. Things start slow and small and they gradually grow. Things take time, they take prayer, they take thought, they take often take fasting, and they take focus and concentration. And that is a great key to a joyful Christian life, quite aside from any um, aspect of expectation of the Lord's return. That is a way to get away from frustration um, and impatience, is to, to reset your idea of how the Christian life works. It's always compared, this is, a, this is a picture that comes again and again in the New Testament. This picture of a seed falling on the ground and then slowly germinating where it can't be seen and then a, a crop gradually growing up and then being ripe for the harvest. Christianity, a Christian life takes time, prayer, thought, fasting and focus. That's the first thing James says. Just deconnect from the ways of this world. Be patient until the Lord's coming. And then he continues in verse 8 with his second, second way for us to wait for Christ's return. He says, you too be patient and stand firm. Or what it actually says in the original is strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Patience leads to a strengthened, to a strong heart. And this is what James says here. So how do we wait for Christ's return? That is, we stand firm, we wait with strong hearts. That is, we strengthen our hearts. What is a strong heart? I think a strong heart is a heart that endures, that holds out, that doesn't falter or fail. It doesn't give up or give in. It doesn't fall into dismay or despair. Strong hearts are the kind of heart that we need to navigate this world as it really is until Christ's return. To deal with the hardship and the suffering that we will see in this life, both inside and outside the church. So if you're wondering why God perhaps isn't changing a situation in your life, why His timing seems from your point of view to be so off, why no relief seems to be forthcoming, then be patient. Take the view of the farmer. The seed is growing. And don't give in, but instead, what we might say here is, do heart work. Work towards strengthening your heart. And that means having a firm adherence, sticking to the faith in the midst of temptations and trials. As we wait patiently for our Lord to return, we need to fortify ourselves, strengthen ourselves for the struggle against sin and with difficult circumstances. That's what James has been talking about all through his letter. These two struggles that we have internally with sin and externally with suffering and trials. So what does it mean to strengthen our hearts? I'd say two things. It means firstly doing things, but especially things like the spiritual disciplines reading the Word of God, praying, fasting. These are spiritual disciplines. Doing these things which keep us taking in the truth of the gospel. The opposite of a strong heart is a weak heart where we get dismayed, where we, get, where we become despairing based on the situations around us. That is to say that 
the truth of the situation or the voice or the, the volume of the situation is speaking more loudly to our hearts, to our minds, than is the truth of the gospel. So strengthening our hearts means um, making sure that we're taking in the truth of the gospel loud and clear. And it means living by the grace of the gospel. And I don't just mean by that, that when we fail or sin, that we ask for God's grace for forgiveness. I mean, recognizing that it's God's grace which empowers our entire Christian life, relying on Him for all we need in our lives. So don't give in and let your heart grow cold or even hard or bitter. You know you need to be patient and strengthen your heart. The third thing James says here, and the next thing he says, is interesting. He says, don't grumble against each other, against one another, verse 9, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. I hope, I hope you can see how these things fit together. In view of the difficulties of life and perhaps of the delay in the Lord Jesus' return, James sees that as Christians we can start to grow impatient which leads to an immature and superficial Christian faith. We can start to lose heart, to give up, either despairing or even returning to our sin, to our former way of life, away from Christ. And we can start to grumble against each other. We've all been lost on a long car trip, haven't we? And sooner or later, people start grumbling against each other in the car. And that's what he's talking about here. We don't know where Jesus is. Why hasn't he returned yet? Things are difficult and we start grumbling against each, each other. And so to combat this natural tendency, perhaps, of things to go in this direction, he says, well, then be patient, strengthen your hearts and don't grumble. And we spoke about this some weeks ago when we talked about the tongue. Grumbling is not a small thing. It can seriously derail the mission of the church and it goes completely against the character that we should have as Christians which is we should be known for our gratitude for the grace that God has shown us, the grace that he's poured out into our lives. And so grumbling starts to undermine the church's unity and therefore also our love for one another and therefore it starts to weaken the church. So he says, do not grumble. And finally, James says, He's telling us here how we should be waiting for the return of Christ. How, how should we wait for the return of Christ? He said he'd be patient. Deconnect from the, the crazy um, culture of instantaneous change which is propagated in our wider culture. Learn to be patient like the farmer. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Then stand firm or strengthen your heart. Don't grumble against one another. And finally, in verse 10 and 11, he says that we have to learn to suffer and persevere. And you can see, I think, how he's built up to this point. So again, the question, the question he's addressing is, how do we wait well for Christ's return? And perhaps one of the key things is that we've learned how to suffer and persevere. All that James has said previously builds the groundwork for suffering and perseverance for good suffering and good perseverance. We're not going to suffer well or persevere well if we're impatient, if we have weak hearts and we tend to give up, and if we grumble against each other. That's not a good way. That's not a good foundation to suffer well on or to persevere on. 
Very rarely will people um, persevere who are completely impatient and weak of heart. So in one sense, we could say as Christians, we suffer because Christ suffered and he called us on the path of suffering. And that's something that we'll talk about in Holy Week. And in fact, um, that is the verse that Jesus says, "If if anyone will be my disciple, they must take up their cross daily and follow after me. Jesus took up his cross. He was prepared to die. He walked the way of the cross and he calls all of us who would follow him to do the same thing. We're called to a life of suffering. So it amazes me how many Christians seem to seem to um, blend out any understanding or, or any idea that suffering is a key part of the Christian life. I think it is. But the point that James is making here, that suffering is actually how God affects his purposes in us and how he ultimately shows who he really is, namely full of mercy and compassion. So God's purposes in suffering are that we come to know God more and more deeply. And I think many of you will have had this experience. You can often be going through life and life is so full that you almost don't have time for God. And then you get sick. You get laid down. You can't move. Maybe, maybe you break a leg. I don't know. Never done that. You can't walk. Or maybe you're, you're in bed with the flu. And suddenly you have so much more time for God. Suddenly you have so much more time for his word and for prayer and to listen to what he might be saying to your life. And that's something that's happened to me many times. I think that's a lesson that I learn every time I'm seriously ill is to recognize my complete dependence upon God, that that he's completely sovereign over my life, that my life continues at his good grace only, and that I need him so much. That tends to get forgotten when, every, when everything is just humming along and life is happening. So God's purpose is in suffering and that we come to know God more and more deeply. So the lesson of Job, and if you know the story of Job, Job suffered a lot. And what James is saying here is that, or what the amazing thing is that James is saying that the lesson that Job shows us, indeed all the prophets who suffered, is that God is compassionate and merciful. That's who he is. He's not only compassionate and merciful, he's much more than just that. But this is who he is deep down. This is his heart. This is who he's showing himself to be in what he's doing for his people, in all the ups and downs of history, in all the blessings, all the hardships, in all our fortunes and misfortunes. He's giving us, his people, the most valuable, precious gift possible. That is, himself, to see who he really is and that we might enjoy him. Let me invite the worship guys to come back up. So this is what James has been showing us here. How do we wait for Christ's return? And how do we do that well? He's saying, are you aware that we're in the last days? We're in that age of history before Jesus Christ returns. There's nothing else that has yet to happen before he comes back. He could come back at any moment. And so we need to be waiting well. We need to be prepared. We need to be pouring out our lives and everything God gives us, not hoarding up things for ourselves now that we live self-indulgent, fattened lives, but so that we lay down our lives and our resources 
for Christ and his kingdom, knowing that at any moment our master could return from his long journey. And Jesus himself said to his disciples, I'm not taking you out of this world. I'm leaving you in this world until I come back. I'm leaving you in this world full of suffering and pain and exploitation and oppression until I come back and set everything to rights. The gospel will be preached, the church will be founded amidst a world of suffering. And therefore, for us who are waiting here, it's so crucial that we wait well, that we have the right understanding of this Christian life. And that's what James is saying here. Guys, be patient. See how the farmer does it. Be like that. Strengthen your hearts. The master might be delayed. He might be a long time in coming. And therefore, make every effort to let God's truth and God's grace flow into your heart day by day so that you don't give up and don't get despaired. Don't grumble one another. Keep the church strong so that we're effective for the mission that we've been given. And realize what we've been called to as Christians. We've been called to follow our Lord and he called us on the road of suffering. And the amazing thing is, when we take that road of suffering, we actually learn more and more deeply who God is for us. And we see that the Lord brings about his purposes through our suffering, such that we fully experience that God is full of compassion and mercy. So let me encourage you with those things tonight, and let me be praying for you, and I want to pray now, and then let's sing a final song, for us to be changed by the Holy Spirit, that we might wait well. Lord Jesus, the early Christians used to pray, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. It's recorded for us in the book of Revelation that this is their prayer, and this should be our prayer also. That we call on you to come and come quickly. We long for your coming, and we pray that you would um, refocus us where we've lost sight of your coming, where we're living for the here and now and for the moment rather than desiring for your kingdom to be, um, to be fully revealed in all its glory at your return. Lord, we pray that we'd have eyes of faith to look towards you, to understand that you are coming back, not to lose sight of the fact that our master is on a long journey, but he will return. And we pray for the strength of this church and for the strength of the mandate, the mission that you gave to all of us as your disciples, that this gospel will be preached to all the nations and then the end will come. We want to be strong in that, united in that. We want to be effective in that and strategic in that. Strategic and effective in loving each other as we together make disciples. And therefore we ask that you would make us patient. We ask that you would give us the right perspective on the Christian life. We ask that you'd strengthen our hearts, that the dominating thing coming into our minds and our hearts is not the lies of this world or the enemy, but the truth of the gospel and the goodness of your grace. Help us to build each other up and not to grumble. And Lord, help us to truly be your disciples, to be willing to go the way of suffering that you trod before us, knowing that you're with us and knowing that as we tread each step on that way, we'll experience more and more that you are gracious and compassionate and full of mercy. We pray these things by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.